0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are once again in Proverbs chapter 12. Picking up where we uh, were two weeks ago. Due to the uh, craziness of last week, we did not have a class. It would not have been amusing to try to teach. Um, and remember, there is no class next week. You have next week off since I'll be in uh, New Orleans. So, all right. And actually, we're at the end of the chapter. We're looking down here at uh, righteousness and the blessings here, and the I think a tremendous statement that gets made in verse twenty-eight: "In the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is." no death. And we have a statement here, I believe, that we can combine with other passages from the Old Testament that portrays a very clear uh, soteriology, a clear statement of life and death in, in spiritual terms, not only as we would understand it on a positional basis, but also on an experiential basis. The uh, The differences between being in fellowship and out of fellowship, and what we would call operational death when you're in carnality and the aspect there. And so uh, I want to spend some time not only looking at it here, but also in some other Old Testament passages, things we've already seen in Proverbs. It is a, a realm of weakness, I think, that oftentimes evangelicals do not teach very well uh, Old Testament salvation from an Old Testament perspective. And yet when Jesus uh, was face to face with Nicodemus, he laid out there, you must be born again, in such a way that uh, Nicodemus should have understood what he was talking about and didn't. And and that was a problem. And so we want to make sure that that we don't have the same problem Nicodemus had, (laughs) all right? In understanding what does it mean to be born again in uh, from an Old Testament uh, perspective. So we'll uh, spend today working on that and see uh, if we can get through it. And then uh, we'll be ready for chapter 13 then in uh, two weeks when I come back. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time of study, shall we pray? mighty father we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth rejoicing in your faithfulness and uh and just blessed father so blessed to uh, have the perspective we have in the church age father we are, have been given more than than any stewardship has ever been given we have the hebrew canon we have the greek canon we have the permanent indwelling of god the holy spirit uh father we have um, The 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 grace provision that's made for us to study the word of God in ways that uh, other believers of previous ages were not provided for, and so here we have it, Father. And I thank you for what you've designed us for. We call upon your faithfulness now to uh, to open our eyes and help us, Father. Help us to think in uh, to 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 walk in somebody else's shoes, to put ourselves in uh, the position of an Old Testament believer. And uh, sometimes that's hard. So uh, provide for us to do so here this morning. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so as we are in point 11 in the outline, I'll just put the slide up here that has all the subpoints on it. It's that one right there. Chapter 12 concludes with a six-verse poetic structure, contrasting the practical benefits to applying personal and public wisdom with the sad consequences for not doing so. And from verse 23 through 28, the structure of the Hebrew lends itself to understand it as a unit uh, in, uh, in the poetry here of this. And, and it's very practical. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. And so, boom, you have a very practical verse that tells you when it's a good idea to shut your mouth, <laughs> okay? Don't just be flapping your gums all the time. There's, there's a, a good time to just stay quiet. And uh, the heart of fools proclaims folly. That's a guy that just can't learn to, to uh, close his mouth and quit proving to everybody what a fool he is. Uh, likewise in verse 24, don't be a slug. Uh, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. And so if you got a, a hardworking, industrious guy and you got a lazy slug, uh, you know it's not going to take too long and the one is going to be working for the other. And it's not going to be the other way around. Okay, Because that's just the way it works. That's the way this world operates. And uh, God the Father designed it that way in, uh, for, for humanity to function. Uh, anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Well, yeah, we get that. Even an unbeliever can get that. And so much of this is practical. Even an unbeliever identifies with it just in terms of temporal life, in terms of establishment life principles. And uh, you go around uh, being anxious all the time, being a worrywart. Being the you know what do you call that the the, the negative Nelly or whatever I mean yeah that's not going to be good for you, and it's going to wear you down and so uh a good word um yeah, and so i I think uh, some of this drives the whole uh uh, psycho heresy industry. I think uh, people pay good money to be told nice things. <laughs> and, uh, to be told that they're good people and be told that they're okay. And there's nothing wrong with them. They just have a, a sickness or a, a syndrome or here, take this pill and you'll be okay. And, and they'll pay good money to be told that they're good people and that whatever their problems are is somebody else's fault. And, uh, and so they, they call that a good word when we know it's just a lie. But, but that even, even their, Pursuits of those things, I think, testify to the truth of, of God's Word. Verse 26, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. And uh, that's, these, these all are self-evident, I think. They preach themselves. Uh, verse 27 uh, goes well with verse 24. A lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is his diligence. If a man is diligent, then he can lose everything and, and be okay. Because he's diligent and he can start over, and uh, and because he's diligent, and uh, the provision is there. All right, and then finally we get to verse twenty-eight. And the way of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And so, this is now subpoint E. Let's get through these. We covered these already: A, B, C, and D, <coughs> and then now E. There it is. The way of righteousness is life. This is a tremendous statement that recognizes positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, and the assurance of ultimate sanctification. So all three phases or all three realms that we talk about when it comes to being saved. And uh, the, the positional aspect, the experiential aspect, and then of course the ultimate aspect. When we are absent from the body and at home with the Lord. When we are face to face with Jesus Christ in, in eternity. And uh, all of the the sin and all of the, the things of, of mortality are gone in, uh, in ultimate sanctification we're talking about a way we're talking about a life and we're talking about uh in fact two terms for way there's a way and there's a pathway in the a part and the b part of uh, of this verse and so it speaks of the overall course of the journey but then it also speaks of the individual segments of that journey individual portions of that journey and uh in all of this, of course, we want to be conformed to the Word of God. We want to be adjusted to what God has revealed in His Word. And so there's the way of life. and. Um, and I like that. I like how uh, when I was a child I, I grew up with that. I learned about the Christian way of life. And that was the terminology. And we learned that if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, now you have this new uh, this new mode, this new way to operate called the Christian way of life. And and you started learning very quickly as you were faithful in the Christian way of life that you were going to be um, kind of the, the the odd duck. You were going to be uh, the, the alien and the stranger in this fallen world. And then folks were going to look at you like like there's something wrong with you, okay? But there's nothing wrong with you. There's everything right with you. You're walking in the Word of God as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And so it's described here. All right. In the way of righteousness is life. And this is, um, I I think, clear. Now, it's not the first time we've encountered this. It uh, came up previously in chapter 8 in the parental wisdom portion. We discussed this already in terms of uh, the, uh, that deep passage that describes Jesus himself and uh, the birthing of his humanity. So let's remind ourselves of, of these principles, okay? But um, the idea that uh, believing in Jesus Christ for eternal life is, is a, an invention of the New Testament is sad. How could that possibly be true? how did how did people get saved up until you know prior to 33 AD okay or prior to the the point of time when uh, when uh, when Luke writes the book of Acts okay when we get Acts 1631 or we get Acts uh, 412 or we get we get other verses you know that we use a lot or in the in the 70s and 80s AD when John writes John 316 you know or before John 336 before before we had some of our favorite gospel verses right before Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, before any of that found its way in Scripture, how did uh, born-again regenerate parents, Jewish parents, Gentile parents, doesn't matter, how did any regenerate parents give the gospel to their children? What 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 were the verses that they employed? How did they take animal ritual and relate the reality of the doctrine that that shadow ritual contained? What scripture did they use? Was it all just oral? Was it all verbal? They they had to have something in writing. What did they have in writing? See? And uh, I've got a a good sample on the screen now from Proverbs, from Deuteronomy, from Samuel, from Job, um, from Psalms. And I think um, that that these are a a representative list. And I want to add, add to that list. I'm not complete on this study yet. This is something I want to uh, work on in, in the months and years ahead and, and maybe even present at a conference at some point. So, um, but I think Proverbs 12.8 is one such verse that speaks of a way, It speaks of a journey, right? Because there's a, a path that leads to destruction and then there's a path that leads to life. The gate is narrow. The scriptures use the, the idea of a way or a gate or a road or a path constantly. To talk about this this journey that we're on either to heaven or to hell, uh to life or to death okay and it and it uses the it talks about it positionally talks about it experientially and then ultimately what we have to look forward to all right so uh, backing up now to Proverbs 8 and verses 35 it's the conclusion again to a chapter like we have in chapter 12 the conclusion to a chapter but remember the the me in this context is wisdom is Jesus Christ the begotten son of God okay and so starting in verse 22 we have his begetting the Lord acquired me at the beginning of his way and uh, the Kana, as as Eve a Cana'd Cain Uh, God the Father, Kanad, Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ. The Lord possessed me, begat me, uh, acquired me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth, when there were no depths, I was birthed, brought forth. That's a childbearing term. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills... I was brought forth. So we have birthing, explicit birthing language in uh, verse twenty-four and in verse twenty-five, along with kana, which can be a birthing term, along with established, which can be a birthing term uh, if it's in that kind of a context, and clearly it is. And uh, and so then we have the work of creation then in verses twenty-five and following. And Jesus is with the Father in that whole process. I was there. I was with Him. I was there. I was there. And uh, the the great corollary, I I love this chapter. This chapter is a great antithesis to the book of Job. When Yahweh says, were you there? (laughs) Where were you, Job, when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Tell me since you know. Tell me since you were there. And all of that rebuke in Job 38 has its answer right here in Proverbs 8. Because Jesus was there. Job wasn't, but Jesus was. And specifically, I was beside him as a master workman. And that expression is unlocked so much for us in verse 30. I was beside him as a master workman. And we, and we see the dynamic between the Father and the Son. The Son didn't do anything apart from the Father's will, apart from the Father's direction, apart from the Father's design. Because until we get to verse 30, as we look through all these verses, it kind of looks like the Father's doing all the work. And the Father's doing all the work, and Jesus is just standing there watching Him. Okay? Right? Do do you read that as well? Does it read like that to you as you're looking at these verses? So, uh, as it says, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. Verse 26, while He had not yet made the earth and the fields. That seems like the Father did it nor the first dust of the world. When He established the heavens, I was there. And so it kind of seems like He was there but the Father was doing all the work, right? Until you get to verse 30 and you realize, wait a minute, He was the workman. He was the master workman, the carpenter. The Father was the architect, the Son was the carpenter. And they're working together in this process. I think it's a beautiful thing. And uh, and, and until you get to verse 30 though, I think There's that tension is building and building and building, intentionally so. Um, And and, and it's not really a problem in Proverbs. It only becomes a problem when we get to John and when we get to Colossians and we get to uh, the the New Testament passages that tell us that God the Son is the one that created everything. Okay? John 1 and and Colossians 1 and and so forth. But I think verse 30 is what reconciles them both in, in a very beautiful way. All right. So I was beside him as a master workman and I was daily his delight. Daily. Now if all there is is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why do they pay attention to daily? Because they've created an existence. They've created a universe. They've created a physical dimension. And in that physical dimension time is, is, is going by. And now the eternal Godhead is operating in fellowship one with another on a daily basis. And so daily His delight, rejoicing always or playing always before Him, rejoicing in the world, His earth, and having my delight, not in angels, but in the sons of men. All right? And so this is a, a powerful thing. And so we have this context here that we have the universe, we have the world, it is His earth, and the, the, uh, the pinnacle of that plan is not angelity, but humanity, And uh, so now, therefore, O sons, listen to me. That is the sons of men. There is a message to humanity. Blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorposts. So there is a there is uh, a way of life for the sons of men and for the for humanity to have any purpose. It has to identify with the Son. It has to identify with Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, there's no value. Apart from Christ, there's no meaning. For he who finds me finds life. Now let me ask you something. Do you think that verse, in an Old Testament standpoint, if you don't have Romans 3.23 or John 3.16 or Acts 16.31, if you don't have it, what verse could you use if you are, let's say let's say you're in you're in uh, the Babylonian captivity in Old Testament times and, uh, and you and your, your uh, born-again wife are trying to give the gospel to your children. Would this not be a good verse you could use in giving the gospel to a child? He who finds me finds life. It sounds very similar to uh, a verse my mother used when she led me to Christ in First John chapter 5. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. All right. He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. You can start to teach grace right there in that verse, and start to realize that finding him is not human effort. Finding him is not a work. It's not it's not it's a non-meritorious acceptance by faith. It is not a work, it's not something that earns and deserves anything. It's grace, it's favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself. What happens if you reject Christ? What if you reject the begotten Son of God? Because remember, this is the chapter that's defining the begotten Son of God. I think it goes great with Psalm 2. Today I have begotten thee. Okay? He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. I believe we have an Old Testament passage here that that is very evangelistic. That's very much compatible with an evangelical, Old Testament evangelical approach. Um, we have echoes of this in, uh, uh, in John chapter 1 with uh, the true light coming into the world and, and those who hate the light, what do they do? They, they remain in darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They hate the light. They don't come to the light so that their deeds are not exposed. Anyway, so we got principles here I think that that uh, can unfold in in a beautiful way, so he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, if uh, like I say that's a verse i 'm going to use if I 'm an Old Testament believer trying to give the gospel to someone that has not yet found Christ, has not yet found. See <clears throat> no, don 't get me wrong the uh, The object of salvation is always Jesus Christ, from Old Testament times, even when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. The object of faith is always Christ. They just don't have the information we have ahead of time. Okay? But they're still placing their faith in Christ. When Adam and Eve accepted the the covering of the animal skins, they uh, are still placing their faith in Christ. We want to be clear on that. All right. Let's stay in Proverbs. I should have put that on my list, too. Genesis 3. It's just not there. All right. Uh, Chapter 10. Proverbs 10 verses 16 and 17. <clears throat> the wages of the righteous is life, the income of the wicked, punishment. That sound familiar? I got a verse here that talks about wages? Okay. I got a verse here that talks about righteousness? A verse that talks about life? Ah. And this is, you know, a thousand years before Romans 3.23 ever shows up. The wages of the righteous is life. The income of the wicked is punishment. Now clearly you can teach that positionally. You can teach that experientially. We can use this on an evangel- uh, evangelical basis to, uh, to an unregenerate person that, that needs to receive eternal life. And then we can teach it a second time to someone who has eternal life but needs the experiential application for how to walk in the light and how to, uh, to live this out. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. And so uh, there's a difference between being put on the path and then following the path. And you can have life but then get off the path. See? Unless, well, okay, there's certain theologies that don't let you do that. (laughs) But the Bible says you can do that. Okay? That you can be born again, saved, and then not run with endurance the race that's set before you. Sad, isn't it? But that's why we're commanded to run with endurance the race that's set before us. So Uh, there it is he is on the path of life who heeds instruction but he who ignores reproof goes astray and this is why in the very first chapter after we've gone from parental wisdom now to personal and public wisdom you can ground your child in the word of god as the maybe do the best job any parents have ever done in the history of parenting all right but then when they leave home and they step into their own generation what happens They have to make the application themselves. They have to do so in their own priesthood, from their own volition, in their own want to. They have to then maintain their their own walk on that path. You can't make them do it. And so uh, there it is. Anyway, that's another passage I would use. Again, if I'm an Old Testament believer and I I I want my uh, children to understand that, I want my children to understand that they must be born again, Okay I want my children to understand that simply being a biological descendant of Abraham is not salvation. See these are the lessons that Jesus was giving, and he was giving the Pharisees he was giving his his Jewish audience, and every message he gave contained within it the sense that they should have known it already. They should have known already that you know don't claim that you have Abraham as your father as if that counts for something all right you must be born again, and so um, simply being being born into a Jewish family does not give you eternal life. Uh, participating in the in the ritual does not give you eternal life. You can have, you can have a Passover dinner as an unbeliever. You can you can eat the same stuff, okay. And all the ritual, all the sacrifice. You know what? You don't even have to be saved to be the high priest. You just have to be the oldest son of the former high priest, okay. And he dies, and you're now the high priest. You're not even born again, all right? Because the requirements of the Levitical priesthood is not our requirements. Okay, they were earthly requirements of biological birth. The requirements of the Melchizedek priesthood we're going to see in Hebrews the power of an indestructible life. It's a beautiful thing. All right, so let's go back to Deuteronomy. So I think there's more scripture, and well, actually, let's go to Genesis. Genesis three. Just so that we can get a sense of this. Genesis 3, on the day you eat of it you will surely die, right? And um, they ate and they did not physically die. Physical death is not what was spoken of. Physical death is not the consequence of Adam's sin. Spiritual death is the consequence of Adam's sin. And so in this, they uh, partake of the fruit. Interestingly enough, she eats of the fruit and her eyes are not yet open. You ever notice that? Well, there it is. So uh, in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was of the to the eyes. The tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. Right there in verse 6. But notice, her eyes aren't open until verse 7. Because she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Her eyes were not opened until Adam failed. Adam's the accountable party. Adam is the the federal head. See, she is in Adam as as his rib. Okay. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Then the the nature of a uh, I think fundamentally the nature of a spiritually dead human being is a sense of um, lack, <laughs> a sense of unworthiness, a sense of separation, a sense of um, insufficiency, a sense of shame. See, before this they were both naked and they were not ashamed. They're still naked. Why are they ashamed? Why is, why is being naked a problem? Why do they want to so? Uh, fig leaves together, make for themselves loin coverings. Anyway, um, we get down through this and um, the Lord God called to them. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there's shame, there's uh, unworthiness, there's um, not measuring up, there's fear, So the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Who told you that you were naked? Now, if you have to be told you're naked, (laughs) that's that's a different mode of existence right there. They were naked and not ashamed and unaware that they were naked. Who, Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that that was a problem? Okay? And why was it a problem? He named all the animals. None of them had any clothes on. Okay? They had fur, they had feathers, they had what. Wed- but the idea that you would take something and then manufacture clothing, okay, so that you could cover up parts of your body, not all your body, but parts of your body. Um none of the animals do that. Why were Adam and Eve going to do that? And uh, You know who invented clothes anyway? Well, seems like they're doing so here. They sewed fig leaves together. All right. So the first uh, industry, the first invention here, sewing. (laughs) All right. Um, Who told you that you were naked? There's a question. Who told you that you were naked? It's almost as as shocked as, did you not know? I must be about my father's business, right? Or. you know, other, other questions like, uh, you know, don't you know you must be born again? Who told you you were naked? Who have you been talking to? Because the Lord didn't tell him that. You talking to somebody besides me? Are you getting spiritual information from somebody beyond Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel? Why, why are you, who are you talking to? Who told you you were naked? And um, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? See, and all of this is the where are you to have you eaten, all this. It, it, it's, it's God looking for confession. Well, the woman you gave me, <laughs> okay? It's her fault. You gave me the wrong woman. You should have given me a better woman. And, uh, and then to the woman, what is this you have done? And she said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. I didn't know better. He told me, you know, he lied to me. And uh, the Lord God, he doesn't have a question for the serpent. He doesn't say, What is this you have done? Or Why did you do? There's no question for the serpent. It's just, Because you've done this, here's your curse. And uh, to the woman, he said, I oh, will greatly multiply your pain. Anyway, we get all, what I'm headed down for here is the clothing. So Adam and Eve are sinners, Adam and Eve are um, unbelievers. Adam and Eve, if they die in verse 16, they're going to go to hell. If they die in verse 17, they're going to go to hell. Um, At what point here? Okay. Verse uh, 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Let me get to the clothing. I, I missed the verse on the clothing. Oh yeah, verse 21, thank you. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, there's a lot that's not said in that verse. But there's a lot that verse does say. He clothed them. So what does that mean? Uh, He made garments of skin. What does that mean? He said, let there be garments and there were garments. Or, he killed Animals in their viewing, in their presence. Right? I believe he killed animals in their viewing and in their presence. I believe, and because we were told in Hebrews that it's by faith that Abel brought the animal sacrifices. By faith means that he was responding to doctrinal teaching. So there was doctrinal teaching about animal sacrifices. It's the only way that Abel could have brought his sacrifices by faith. And so, in accordance with doctrinal teaching, then, so he killed the animals, and then he made garments for them. Now, God clothed them. Now, how do you clothe a, a, a different person besides yourself? If you want to clothe somebody else, you're going to clothe an infant, yeah, you can force clothes over their head and through their arms and through their, you know. You can you can do that with a baby. Uh, it's harder to clothe an adult person. You can do it again with the elderly, you can help them get dressed and different things. Or you can clothe a person by making the provision, placing them there and leaving it to themselves to accept the gift that you have provided for them. To make the provision and offer it to them, they must then respond and accept the offering that you provided. And if they accept the offering you provided, then they are responding by faith right? And because it's all grace, they didn't do anything to provide it. And so um, to put the garments on, um, he clothed them, and there it is. Now, I believe in verse 21 then, they get saved, to use our language. I believe that they are fallen, they're spiritually dead, but they are regenerated when they put, that cl- when they put the clothes on. That when they when they by faith respond to his provision, by faith they are again. You know they could reject it. They could just say, "Nope, we're fine. Fig leaves are great. We're going to stick with these." And in fact, we're kind of done listening to you anyway. We're going to go over here and 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 start following this serpent guy. Um, no, they listen to the Lord. They put on the garments. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. We have a problem here. He's saved, his nakedness is covered, okay? The sin is not removed, but the nakedness is covered. That's what Old Testament atonement's all about, the covering of the nakedness. And so, but now we have an issue. Now he's got a, he's got a corrupt body and, uh, and he might eat of that tree of life and eat and live forever. I can't imagine having eternal life in this body. How, how horrendous would such a thing be? You know, you're talking about zombies, body of the living dead, okay? Imagine this mortal body that can't die. How horrendous would that be? And so he drives them out of the garden. Okay? And I'll say this again. Physical death was not the punishment for Adam's original sin. Spiritual death was the punishment for Adam's original sin. In Adam all die. Spiritual death. Nothing whatsoever to do with physical death. Because in Christ all are made alive. Spiritual life has nothing to do with physical life. Okay? Physical death is a consequence, not of the fall, physical death is a consequence of having access revoked to the tree of life. That is the, that is the, the cause of physical death. Alright, so there it is. And I think that's the, the prototype gospel, that's the protoevangelism, Along with putting on the clothes, they had the promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head in verse 15. That uh, the seed of the woman is a promised deliverer. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. That humanity would have a Messiah someday. The seed of the woman will deal with the serpent someday. And so in chapter 4 they have relations and um, she conceived and gave birth to Cana, to Cain, and said, I have acquired a man-child of the Lord. And um, perhaps even thinking that this is the seed of the woman promise right here. And again she gave birth, most likely twins, rabbis thought they were twins, Because there's only one relations, but there's two birthings. One conception, two birthings. She gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so we have the thing there. So there I think is is our prototype evangelism. Uh, But scripture now, what scriptures would we use? We could use this, we could use Genesis 3, we could show the clothing and the skins, We could use Genesis 3 in our evangelism. I think we could also use Deuteronomy in our evangelism. Deuteronomy 8.3. Some Old Testament evangelical verses here. And... um, This is, uh, Jesus cited this, right, in his temptations. This is this meant a lot to him. Deuteronomy 8, all the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. Understand that this passage deals with a lot of issues. And it starts with that you may live. And then it goes to secular life, multiply and possess the land and and, uh, so forth. All the temporal life applications. But it starts with that you may live. You shall remember all the way in which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And so we have the, the right from the beginning of this chapter, we have the recognition that Israel is a covenant people. They are a unique people. They are unique in all of human history, that they stand before the Lord, and that He humbles them, that He provides for them, that He tests them, and that the testing is a heart testing. It's not legalism, it's not external ritual, it's not how good you can be at remembering all the all the procedures and legalism of, of uh Of process. It's heart obedience. He humbled you and let you be hungry. He let you be hungry. Why does God let you be hungry? So that He can feed you. He let you be hungry. Isn't that great? Isn't God great to let you have testing? Isn't He great to let you have, uh, you know, problems and testing and circumstances? So don't complain that you're hungry. Say, thank you, God, for letting me be hungry. Because you let me be hungry, you then let me accept your provision. You let me accept your grace. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And so they learn on day one that there's, there's bread and then there's bread. There's, there's earthly bread, but then there's everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we want to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. All these other things will be added unto us. Okay? The foundation for what Jesus taught in the Gospels comes here. It's in the Hebrew canon. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. All right, that's a grace provision. There's other things here. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Can you imagine... You're walking in the wilderness for 40 years and you have the same pair of shoes you had 40 years ago. That wouldn't happen today. All right. (laughs) So there it is. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord know in your heart. See, salvation is always the recognition of truth and responding to a promise and trusting by faith. The Lord your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and to fear Him. And to fear Him. So don't, don't promote secular life over spiritual life. It starts with spiritual life and uh, comes in that relationship as a son to a father. God disciplines you as a man disciplines his son. You've got to be born again. You've got to walk as a child. You've got to respond by faith and all these things. They're, they're in the Old Testament. They're in the Old Testament. All right. Deuteronomy 30. There's a longer section, verses 15 through 20. I would use this passage as well. Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Notice there's two things there on both sides there's life and prosperity, there's a tandem, there's death and adversity, there's a tandem. We have a a, a tandem, we have a, a duality if we're going to talk about spiritual life versus temporal life. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments. So in other words, be saved. Be saved. All who hate me love death. To love the Lord your God. We can view this on a positional basis in terms of being saved. And then beyond that, to live it out in walking in His ways, to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments. And so to follow Mosaic law, to follow the prescripts, to to operate in temporal life as a Jewish person in the Old Testament is not an external, earthly, legalistic thing. It is spiritually grounded in the reality of being saved, of loving the Lord your God. That you may live... And multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So, not only do you live, but you really live. You live and you live abundantly, as Jesus said. I have come that they may have life, that they may have it in abundance or abundantly. Right? And all these things that are spelled out so explicitly in the New Testament, we have the basis for them here in the Old Testament. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them i declare to you today that you shall surely perish you will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the jordan to enter and possess it and so this is the the unique circumstance for israel as the covenant nation i call heaven and earth to witness against you today i have set before you life and death the blessing and the curse so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. You know, giving a command to somebody who's already alive to live, <laughs> that that means something. All right? That means that it's something bigger than just physical life. It's 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 insane to talk to somebody that's physically alive and order them to be physically alive. They're already physically alive. But to say, I have placed before you life and death. So choose life. That's got to be something different than physical life. We've got to have a a spiritual life that's in focus. You must be born again, and Nicodemus should have understood this. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. You know, you and your son and your grandson and your great-grandson, how many generations are alive after you? And you're all physically alive, but you need to choose life. Okay? Because all who hate me love death and choose life. Accept the sun. Put on those clothes. Reject the the fig leaves and accept the the animal sacrifice. Accept that an innocent life is going to die so that your nakedness can be covered. Accept the principles of um, substitutionary atonement. And all of this is the doctrine that's contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. Notice, by choosing life, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. Holding fast to Him. There's an intimacy in this walk. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. So, to operate as a born-again believer in the Old Testament operating on this basis. All right, a few more. Uh, 1 Samuel 2.6. And so keep in mind, with Genesis and with Deuteronomy, with the Torah, we have some of the earliest scriptures. Along with Job, we've got some of the earliest scriptures. The earliest written canon contains evangelistic doctrine contains verses that would be employed by regenerate people in evangelizing the unregenerate, in telling a, a Nicodemus kind of religious person that you must be born again. All right, um, 1 Samuel 2.6. Here's the song of Hannah, and there's so many parallels to this um in fact this is this song is is uh it's a good study to pursue compared with elizabeth's song and mary's song in uh, in the gospel of luke Uh, i think it gives us a tremendous old testament clue as to what elizabeth and mary were singing about remember when elizabeth and mary were singing they didn't have any new testament bible either Okay, So when they write their song that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, they're they're writing that song based upon Old Testament doctrine. They don't have any New Testament scriptures yet when Mary and Elizabeth are singing their songs. And so here's Hannah's song. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah understands salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed there is no one beside you there is, nor is there any rock like our God. So she understands salvation is to be conformed to the holiness of God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and with Him actions are weighed. That if you are saved you are accountable to live according to what He has revealed in His Word. The bows of the mighty are shattered, the feeble gird on strength But those who were uh, were full hire themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. And so she gets this. She gets the contrast between secular life and spiritual life, between the temporal and the eternal. And she gets this, that the poor can be spiritually rich and that the rich can be spiritually destitute. the Lord kills and makes alive. That's kind of backwards, isn't it? <laughs> okay, well, is it? You know, why, why is it evening and then morning? Why is it that order? Why is it death and then life? Why is it that order? Why is it kills and makes alive in that order? Specifically because she is singing as a believer that understands that this life is preparatory to the next. The Lord kills and makes alive. How about on the grand scheme of Adamic humanity? On the day Adam and Eve sinned they died. God kills. He, He hands down judicial punishment to Adamic humanity. But then He provides for eternal life. He provides for redemption. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich, He brings low, He also exalts, He raises the poor from the dust, He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. And it may not be in this life. Okay? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, He will exalt you at the proper time, and it may be the proper time is in glory. Alright, well, this is a beautiful song and she's singing it and it conveys a tremendous amount of New Testament understanding and she doesn't have a New Testament. She doesn't have Psalms. She doesn't have Proverbs. She doesn't have the prophets. She has Torah. Alright? She has Torah is all she's got. Um, she's living during the time of the judges. She wouldn't even have Joshua. Well, she might have, she'd have Joshua, but not Judges. Not Ruth. She has Torah. She might have Job. Probably not. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she'd probably have Job. All right. So there it is. Job 14. I'm not going to read 22 verses to you, but Job 14, 1 through 22 is, um, is remarkable. The context for this, the setting for this is pre Abrahamic. Uh, the, the territory for this is, is Midianite. The, uh, the region here, uh, I think, is, uh, is very well correlates with perhaps uh, doctrine that, that Moses would have been exposed to uh, while living with his father in law Jethro before the Exodus, all right, before he returned back to Egypt to redeem Israel. We have uh, the, the earliest of, of, uh, of the scriptures right here. And um, context for this, 1 through 14, or 1 through 22, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. (laughs) Okay? You know, raise your hand if your mom was a woman. That's, that's, That's all of us. Okay? But the point is, born of a woman tells you what? Tells you that you have a perspective that the seed of the woman is the answer, is the solution. That there is provision for the redemption of humanity and it's going to come about through the seed of a woman. And so man who is born of woman has a Savior on the way. And that's going to be one born of a a virgin, born born of a woman. And uh, uh, short-lived and full of turmoil, like a flower he comes forth and withers. He flees like a shadow, does not remain. And so life is short, but there's judgment. You also open your eyes on him and bring him into judgment within yourself. And so, yes, we have a short life, but that shortness of that life has an eternal consequence. We get brought into judgment face-to-face with our God. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Can we save ourselves? Nope. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. His limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Turn your gaze from him that he may rest until he fulfills his days, like a, his day like a hired man. For there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again and its shoots will not fail. Though its roots grow old in the ground, its stump dies in the dry soil. At the scent of water it will, be, it will flourish, it will put forth sprigs like a plant. But man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? As water evaporates from the sea, as the river becomes parched and dried up so man lies down or does not rise until the heavens are no longer he will not awake or be aroused from his sleep. And so we have a neat picture here of physical life, physical death. Is there a hope of resurrection in this? I believe there is. Oh that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? Yes, all the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. I like to throw this passage in my funeral messages. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, you do not observe my sin. He knows that he is a work in God's hands. And a day will come that God will say, all right, you're finished now. And that and he's going to bring that work home. For now you number my steps. You do not observe my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag. You wrap up my iniquity. How does he understand the forgiveness of sin? How does he understand redemption and atonement and and forgiveness and all of this? How can it be sealed up in a bag? Who does that? Who can make the unclean clean? This is Old Testament doctrine right here and yet it's, uh, there it is. All right. The um, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. You know, the worst uh, sermon to ever listen to is the one right before a pastor goes on vacation. (laughs) He tends to go long and over time (laughs) and doesn't want to stop. So you are officially warned. All right. Um, Job 19, verses 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were written. (laughs) Well, guess what, Job? They are. (laughs) They're written down. We're reading them right now. Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Better than that, because the rocks aren't permanent. (laughs) Okay, Heaven and earth are going to pass away, but God's word won't pass away. Job, your words are recorded in heaven. And uh, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Job understands the doctrine of the kinsman Redeemer. How does he understand that? He doesn't have the Torah. He doesn't have Psalms. He doesn't have Proverbs. He doesn't have the the Prophets. He doesn't have in the New Testament. But he knows that his Redeemer lives. He serves a living Redeemer. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Not only is the seed of the woman going to come someday, that Redeemer already lives because Yahweh is the living God. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. The body dies, but there is a bodily resurrection whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. The first one I shall look upon. I shall know him. I shall know him. Okay? My heart faints within me. All right, well, there it is. Great doctrine. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. Psalm 49. More evangelicalism in the Hebrew canon. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. I'm running out of time. I'd read the first, all these other verses here. Um, Verse 5, Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me, even those who trust in their wealth? Notice, you can place your faith in the wrong object, but there is a faith imperative. And boast in the abundance of their riches. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Now they were expected to redeem the firstborn. They were expected to redeem their brother. They were expected to redeem property, to redeem a widow, to redeem a childless son, to redeem land that had been sold. They they were expected to redeem a lot. And yet with all that redemption doctrine, they knew that they could not truly they could do ritual. They could not redeem, in terms of salvation, anyone. Or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. That he should live eternally. That he should not undergo decay. Do you want eternal life? You can't do it. You can't redeem it. But the Redeemer can. Accept the gift of the kinsman Redeemer. Finally, Psalm 118. What do we know about Psalm 118? It's right before Psalm 119. <laughs> All right. So you've got the big long one that's easy to find and then the one right before that one. Open to me the gates of righteousness, I shall enter through them, I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, you have become my salvation. So I don't have Romans 3.23, or I don't have Acts 16.31, I don't have John 3.16, let's just say I'm an Old Testament believer and all I've got is the Hebrew canon. Here's a good verse, okay? Okay here 's a good verse, and there's more i 'm thinking even now, but how about you know isaiah fifty five how about ho come to me, buy for me without cost okay there's more. I think that we can find a tremendous wealth of evangelical gospel teaching in the Old Testament, and we need to do so. we need to do so. I think sometimes it's uh it's unfortunate that uh, dispensationals and covenant guys both i think that they they confuse things unnecessarily. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Faith has always been in Jesus Christ. Maybe under different names, maybe with a more limited understanding of course. They didn't know the name of Jesus until Joseph and Mary gave them the name of Jesus. They were expecting Emmanuel, they were expecting other names. But uh, they, he gets the name Jesus and that's now there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. All right. Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for Proverbs 12. I thank you for the blessings of studying to show ourselves approved. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.